Hey, uh, we are continuing in a series on the letter of Titus, or the book of Titus. Um, We're in week two of three, and uh, today we're going to continue that. This is a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege at the time, Titus, or one of his young protégés, and he was giving instructions as to how to be an effective Christian leader as a part of this letter that he writes. And it's a part of the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy as well, and it's got a really great deal of wisdom for all leaders. And even though this particular letter is written to leaders, particularly Christian leaders, there is wisdom that we can glean, every one of us can glean in terms of how we follow Jesus and how we grow to become more like Him as a part of this letter. And in week one, Dave Luthi spoke to us about our character The character of a leader is paramount. He spoke about different principles of leadership that we had. So Christian leaders shouldn't lead alone. They need support and accountability and empowerment. That Christian leaders are in place to lead, um, but as well as leading, they are also followers as well. And spoke about us all being leaders in varying different ways, some more so than others, um, but ultimately we know that the Christian life is one that leads by being on display to others as well. And finally, he also spoke about being a Titus One leader. So how do we use the influence that we have in the spaces and the places and the connections and the communities and the people that we encounter, how do we use that for good? And so as we come into a new year, many of us use this as an opportunity to kind of reset, refocus, position ourselves in terms of positive change in our lives. And this letter is a really great way that is going to speak to us and continue to speak to us in positive ways. And today what we're going to do is look at the second chapter of Titus, Titus chapter 2. It's going to be on the screen as we read, but I want to invite you, um, if you would, join me in standing for the reading of our Scripture together. That would be great if we could stand as we read along and follow along in Titus 2. This is God's Word that has been given to us through the hand of the Apostle Paul, so let's read together. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Please be seated. Now, as we grow in our lives, uh, we learn many, many new things. And I think this is most obvious in terms of the new learning when it comes to the developmental stages of a child or, or of an infant. Um, a child actually goes through four developmental stages, the neonatal stage, which is zero to one month, then the infant stage, one month to a year of life. Following on from that, they become a toddler and toddle around from one to three years of life and then a preschooler from grades three to six. And each of those stages in a child's life is marked by these distinct milestones when it comes to their physical development, their cognitive development, and their social development, what happens around them. And in just a short few years, a child just learns an astronomical amount of things in their lives. Now, if we actually stopped and we picked apart every single thing that a child learned, uh, I think it would be fair to say there is just so much there. There is a dense amount of learning that happens in this stage of life. But as we grow beyond infancy, into childhood and then into adulthood, we don't stop learning, do we? We know that we continue to learn. As adults, we learn in all different ways. We learn by observing other people, by listening to others, by asking questions, by hands-on experiences. They're just a few ways. And there are different types of learning that you will find yourself more effective than the person that you are sitting next to right now. Let's see from the next slide if you can identify the most effective way that you learn. We've got three learning styles here on the screen. There's a visual way. Are you a learner who likes videos and images and graphics? Or maybe you're an auditory learner. You like listening to podcasts or having conversations and you learn with, by discussing things with other people. Maybe you're a kinesthetic learner. I like this one just because that word is so cool to say, kinesthetic, right? Um, that's a hands-on learner. If you are into personal experience, you want to get in there and learn by doing you are a kinesthetic learner, as it is called. In this day and age, in 2024, the use of technology when it comes to our learning is the greatest it's ever been, isn't it? We've got, we just need to think about those two letters, AI or artificial intelligence, to know that machine learning is at such a stage now that we can literally get an exact answer to the specific question that we are asking thanks to AI. That means that for many of us, we don't need to troll through those websites, you know, trying to get rid of those annoying click, clicking pop-up banners that you just can't seem to get away uh, off your screen. And uh, if you are a visual learner, then I also don't need to tell you about the value of something like YouTube, right? You either, if you've got a problem, you can either Google it or you can YouTube it, I guess you could say. 
And so we learn in different ways, and what we learn sometimes can be really easy to understand. We can grasp the concepts and what is being communicated. But sometimes what we are learning can be very difficult. It can be a hard slog to actually get through learning. Anyone who's taken on further education knows exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes it can take a really long time for us to learn and a challenging or difficult experience for us to actually learn something new, either about ourselves or about what is being taught to us. I learnt the hard way when it came to my driver's licence as a young adult. I think this is the first time I've publicly said this, but I, yes, I'm guilty, I failed my driver's licence not once, but twice before I finally got my license on my third attempt. Now, at the time, I was pretty discouraged when I failed those first two times. There were critical errors that I committed, but looking back, I am so thankful that I did because it absolutely was a learning experience for me that helped me to actually drive safely, for starters. As adults, we approach our learning in different ways as well. We might be tempted to think, because we're adults, we know more than, say, younger people. And while that might be true in various aspects, sometimes we might be tempted to switch off from learning from those who are younger than us. Then there's the picture when it comes to learning of kind of having it all together, or dare I say, even knowing it all, or feeling like you've got enough of a picture that you don't need to maybe hear about what is being taught. And we might also consider learning something, uh, learning something that is all that we do to solve a problem. That we, we learn what it is to get that problem solved, and then we kind of throw that learning out the door, so to speak. The reality is, and the point that I'm driving home here, is that you and I, as you know, are lifetime learners. Uh, the blues guitarist B.B. King said, to stop learning is to stop living. And then Albert Einstein, he said, the more that I learn, the more I realise how much I don't know. We already know this. It never hurts to say it again and again. We are all learners. We all have our L plates on. But as well as learners, we are teachers. We teach in different ways. We teach through many of the ways I've spoken about in terms of learning, through verbal communication, through the example we uh, set, through hands-on demonstrations. And we teach to different people in our lives, whether it's in our workplaces, in our ministry areas, our family, our friends, uh, people in our community that we're engaged with in different ways. But the problem about teaching is we don't always get it right. My son, he loves fishing. He absolutely loves fishing. And I can tell you my son loves fishing because for Christmas this year, he got fishing lures and a yabby pump. I can tell you my son loves fishing because he has been doing his chores and he has been saving up for a fishing rod. And he's been doing this saving for over a year now. I can tell you my son loves fishing because every single day he goes, hey, Dad, what are the tides like? And then I can tell you my son loves fishing because every other day he tells me, hey, Dad, can we go fishing today? He absolutely loves it. And anyway, on this one occasion, we were trying some beach fishing, something we hadn't done before, and we found this spot where there was this little rocky outcrop that jutted out from the shoreline. And I saw that spot, and I'm like, that's where we're going to go to fish, son. So we we headed off there, and as a part of our 
fishing on the beach, I really wanted to teach him how to do this well. And so I said, you see this rocky outcrop, we need to cast out into the ocean, but we need to avoid the rocks in front of us, as well as that, when we're, when we're bringing our line back in, we need to avoid getting a snag and catching it on one of the rocks that is placed around the outcrop. And so that was the verbal way of communicating, but then I thought, I'm going to go to the next level and give him an example of it. And so I threw my line in, I did all right with that, and then as I'm bringing the line back in, talking to him about how you should do it, what happens to me? I hit a snag. And in that moment when I hit the snag, I was just disappointed in myself because I'd set this up for a win for me. I'd set this up for a teaching opportunity for him. But I was disappointed and I was actually grumpy and cranky about it and I just was not uh, responding well. And my son was observing all that. He was listening to the way my tone of voice changed, my emotions, my body language. He was taking that on board. It's fair to say that that particular experience wasn't a great one for me when it came to being a teacher. And as teachers, we don't always get things right. We don't always have the best methods. We don't always respond in the best ways. And we don't always know how to teach people that maybe have different needs when it comes to learning. But just as you and I are learners, we are also all teachers. Regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, we are learners and we are teachers. To continue our learning for this morning, let's have a look at how first century Jews learnt and taught in their time, just to get a bit more perspective. If you're a first century Jewish youth, then you would have done your learning not by sitting in a classroom, listening to a teacher speak up the front of the room. You would have learnt through a variety of different ways. There would have been oral tradition. Um, so telling stories that were passed down from generation to generation into the fa other family members, who would then in turn tell those stories to their family members in future years. You would have learnt through studying, uh, you would have studied religious texts like the Torah under the guidance of other elders who would help you with and through learning and understanding what was going on. You would participate, if you're a first century Jewish youth, in very hands-on practical learning experiences, such as agricultural practices. So you would plant and harvest crops, but you'd do it alongside adults who would talk to you and work with you as you did these practices. And as you did that, you would understand how to cultivate crops, you would understand the seasonal cycles, you would appreciate the significance of, what, of the work that they were doing in the field. You would also have daily activities that would help you form habits, just like reading the Scriptures, and they would help you function in life and help you understand the norms in society and culture at the time. And as well as that, you would have rituals like the Passover, like we see on the screen. During the Passover festival, there would be these symbolic rituals like the cedar meal, where adults and youths and children would all sit around a table and participate in this meal together. They would ask questions, they would receive explanations, they would have hands-on um, activities that they would do as a part of this meal, and it was all about learning the significance both from a historical but also a spiritual perspective for the Passover. And so that was used as a teaching tool for a first century Jews. 
And finally, a key way that Jewish young people would learn would be through apprenticeships. They would sit underneath someone who was older and wiser than them, as someone I guess you could call their master, and they would observe how their master lived by doing life alongside their master. They would rub shoulders with them in apprenticeship. They would also practice the same skills that the master demonstrated with the goal of becoming more like them in terms of their skills. And then through growing into an adult and growing through their apprenticeship, they would be people who would do what their master did. They would live and work and do his works. Now, if we compare first century Jewish culture to 21st century Christian culture today, I think it's fair to say we learn in both similar and slightly different ways. I would argue more of our learning is done more in isolation these days, thanks to technology, thanks to distance education. Not necessarily a bad thing, just a, a, different, a point of difference. And while we do have family traditions that we pass down and practice from generation to generation, I would probably argue they're not as deeply seeded into the way of living as they were for first century Jews. But there are similarities in our learning. And here in our passage that we've read this morning, we see that Paul says in verse 1, Titus needs to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. And he's basically saying, if you call yourself a Christian, if you've got a real faith, then you're actually going to demonstrate a type of behaviour in your life as a result of that. And then from verses 2 through to 10, Paul lists out these six different people groups as a part of teaching. You have the older men, the younger men, older women, younger women, Titus himself, and slaves. And on the screen you'll see there's a list of ways that each of these people were to be taught, keeping in mind the cultural and societal context was really, really different in 60 AD compared to what it is now. But there's just a few things. Older men were to be worthy of respect. Younger men were to be self-controlled. Older women were to not be gossips or drunkards and to live reverently. Younger women were to love their families. Titus himself was to show integrity in his teaching and slaves were, be to, were to be subject to their masters in everything. These are all good attributes that, uh, that Paul lists out here that need to be learned and taught by each people group. And they're really good things to aspire to. And I encourage you, you can go back and have a look in detail at what each of those things are. We, in fact, could do an individual sermon on each of those attributes. We don't have time for that this morning. But here is a little summary of the key themes, a few of the key themes that Paul is talking about here. He's saying there's an expectation for older men to be dignified people, to be mature, in essence, to grow up from being young. Uh, he's saying there's an expectation for older women to practice being in and with the presence of God Himself while also avoiding moral failures. Paul is saying there's an expectation for younger women here to be trained up in both loving well and living well. And there's an expectation for younger men just to do one thing, develop one thing, and that is self-mastery. 
that's control over things like their temper, like your tongue, your ambition, your sexual urges, your thought life, all of those kinds of things. There's an expectation for Titus himself to be the benchmark, to be the one who sets the standard through his teaching, both the words and the behaviour that he teaches. And there is an expectation for slaves to focus on their work and their character in relation to their masters. Now, after going through these themes and looking at these different people groups that Paul is addressing here, I think it's pretty clear that he is speaking and and saying that we need to work on and develop a few things. Our character, which we have been already talking about in chapter one, our spirituality, and as well as that, our communication, how it is that we communicate. But how can you and I both learn and teach about these things, about character, about our spirituality, and communicate God's truths well? How can we do this and do it well? My wife and I, we have been watching a little bit, not a lot, a little bit of Jamie Oliver recently. I don't know if anyone else loves a bit of Jamie. I was going to try and do an accent there, I probably shouldn't. Um, I don't know about you, but there is something really comforting and enjoyable about food, um, watching food preparation shows, at least for me. I just love it. It's like a cosy way of viewing things. Anyway, I'm babbling now. Um, What I really love about Jamie Oliver is this guy is so passionate and enthusiastic about food that sometimes when he's talking and explaining things, he's like talking, it's like he's almost talking to the food like it's going to talk back to him, you know, he's got this deep relationship with his food. Anyway, we're watching an episode of Jamie and one of the things I love about him is he often has a key ingredient or a special ingredient that he has as a part of his cooking. It's something that you often would not expect to be in a dish. And uh, we were watching him make this, what was called a fragrant fragrant squash curry. And he had all of the essential elements that built a good curry together. And then Jamie Oliver goes to the pantry and he gets out this tin, this canned tin sealed up. And he brings it over on the bench and plops it down. And it's a tin of pineapple rings in in juice. And he just opens it up and pours it into the curry. And when he did that, I was like, yeah, that's brilliant. I would not have thought that, but I can actually see how those flavours work in the curry that Jamie is making. This little ingredient that makes the flavour pop and shine in a way that it otherwise wouldn't. In our text here, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright lives in this present age. When it comes to our learning and to our teaching, the key ingredient that Paul is emphasising here in our passage is grace. You know, we just celebrated the birth of Jesus, our Saviour at Christmas, and here Paul's reminding Titus in his writing, God's saving grace That's available to all people through Jesus. But God's grace doesn't stop at being just saving grace. Grace the Saviour is also grace the Teacher. And that is what Paul is talking about here. Grace not only saves, it also teaches us. It teaches us how 
to live our lives. We can't just have a mental understanding, you and I, of God's grace that only exists in our head. That's not a true realisation of grace in our lives. To truly know God's great grace is to know that we are desperate. We are completely lost without our Saviour, Jesus. That we don't stand a chance without His grace that He has chosen to extend to each and every one of us freely by His own choice. And so God's grace, it affects our very being. It teaches us how to live. But how does this work? How does God's grace teach us? Well, in our our text here, Paul gives us two main lessons. He gives us both a negative one and a positive one. The negative lesson is that it teaches us grace to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. So those things of the world, the negative things, as we lean into grace, it teaches us to resist them to live those self-controlled lives. And that is part of the positive, is that grace teaches us to be self-controlled, upright, and live godly lives in the present age. Two years ago, I can say that now, two years ago our home was, was flooded in the February Brisbane 2022 floods, and water came into every room of our house, and it essentially destroyed everything all of our furnishings, our personal items, our beds, the house itself. We had to essentially start again. And like many, many others who were affected, we were left without a place to live for most of the year. But during this particular season in my own life, in my family's life, I can say that God's grace was really, really evident. Time and time again, I just really saw Him show up. His grace reminded me that he was in control in this situation, that he was the one who was providing everything that we needed, despite us not having a roof over our heads or not having our roof over our heads. And it wasn't just the physical needs either. And and during that season, what God was teaching me was to bring everything before him. That was part of the lesson that I was learning, to bring both the big picture of of our situation and the crisis we were working through, to bring that to Him, but also to bring the small, fine details before Him. And God's grace was also on display, might I say, uh, through you, through our church family together. My family felt so supported and we were so thankful for the gift of our church family when we went through a crisis like this in so many ways. You know, I learnt patience, I learnt to trust, I learnt to make decisions, but not only decisions, I learnt to make wise decisions as a part of this particular challenge. I learnt how to care for and support my family through this crisis. I learnt the art of dealing with an insurance company on the phone. I don't know if you guys have learnt that art, but if you need any tips, I can help you with that to at least a little degree. Now, that was an exercise in patience all unto itself. But you know what? In reflecting on that whole situation now, two years later, as I look back, I can say that the thing that I learnt the most was to receive God's love and to receive God's grace in my own life in ways that I had never done before. 
Never before had I been through a situation like this where I just had to just completely let go. I had no choice. When that water was coming in, it was like, I cannot stop this. Normally, we are used to, as, as humans, trying to fix problems and finding solutions and being effective in that. Well, this was a situation where I just had to let go and I had to let God, so to speak. And in doing so, I actually learned to receive and accept this amazing, undeserved grace in new ways that he was pouring out on myself and my family as a part of this situation. And that grace didn't just stick and, and disappear. It has transformed and changed me, and I can honestly say that to you. You see, God's grace disciplines us. It does train us to live God's way instead of our own way. It tells us or disciplines us to say no to choosing our own way of living and to give up our old life and accept the new life that Christ has given to us. And so, with this in mind, what might a grace-filled learner or a grace-filled teacher, what might they actually look like? Well, here's a list of some of the standout qualities that shine through for someone who is full of grace. Um, and as we go through this list, I want you to challenge, uh, take, take this as a challenge, think about these qualities in your own life, have a think about which of these qualities might need work in your own lives. If you're like me, you'll probably say all of them, but uh, think about which ones in particular you might be able to focus on yourselves. Humility. Grace-filled people demonstrate this humility in their lives where they don't think too highly of themselves or become too proud, but they still give their best, they accept their position, and they're willing to keep that student mentality as a teacher and a learner. A grace-filled learner and a teacher asks questions. Someone who is always learning is someone who is asking questions, and I know I've found it that asking questions is one of the best ways to engage your mind when it comes to learning. One of the best ways that I engage my mind when I'm listening to someone preach is to ask questions and not be afraid to ask some honest and challenging questions of what is being spoken about. A grace-filled learner is also compassionate. A grace-filled teacher is compassionate as well, just as God has had compassion on us. And that doesn't mean that we necessarily are a doormat for people, but they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect as we both learn and teach. A grace-filled leader and learner and teacher embraces challenges, that is, they take risks and they look for those opportunities to take those wise, calculated risks. They're also open to feedback. A grace-filled teacher and learner will receive criticism in a way that doesn't allow them to get emotionally upset, but rather they will take on that perspective of using that criticism to want to improve or better themselves. And a grace-filled learner, it goes without saying, is patient, and, and the teacher is patient. And sometimes things just take a long time to either teach or learn, and patience is really key. And so there's some qualities when it comes to both our learning and teaching in being grace-filled. I want to invite the worship team to, to come on back now. It is the start of a new year, and... There is an opportunity for us, if we haven't already done so, uh, the opportunity still exists, I believe, um, to both look back and to look forward. 
And in, in the latter part of this text, Paul talks about this word. He speaks about the present age, and he says that grace uh, is what we have in, and it teaches us in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, for the appearing of the glory of God. And what he's saying here is that the best way for us to live now is for you and I to learn to do spiritually what we cannot do physically as people. And that is to look in opposite directions and do it at the exact same time. To look back and to remember the appearing of God's grace that He has given to us, while at the same time looking forward with anticipation to the hope and the, the reality that Jesus is one day going to return and He's going to set everything right, the appearing of His glory, the appearing of His grace. And this is a part of our daily discipline as disciples of Jesus, to both look back with gratitude in our lives, but also look forward with hope and hold those two things in tension. God's grace and glory aren't just things that we remember at Christmas or Easter or when a crisis or a challenging situation comes up in our lives. It is something that is given to us daily. His mercies are new every single morning. His grace washes over you afresh, even today. And so for some of you, as, as you hear this, that might mean just being open to accepting God's grace in your life for the first time. That there's nothing that you can do to earn His favour. That Jesus is the one, He's done it all. He's paid the price for everything in your past, your present and your future. And it says that whoever puts their faith in Him, whoever trusts in Him, whoever gives and surrenders their life to Him will have eternal life with Him. Maybe you need to be open to accept His grace. Uh, for some of you, it might mean that you need to accept God's grace afresh in your life this morning. Maybe you've been holding it at a distance. Maybe you haven't been opening your arms wide enough to receive the fullness of His grace in your life. And for some of us, it might mean that we need to slow down enough to live at the pace of God's grace in our lives, so that way we can actually hear what it is He is saying to us, to become more aware of His presence in every moment, in every turn in our lives, the way that He's leading, the way that He's teaching us. Our job while we wait in this in-between for Jesus to return isn't to sit back and live a comfortable life. While we wait, we live in the life that Jesus has given us, the new life that has transformed us. And our job is to allow His grace to continue to do its work, to continue to transform you. Would we be these people that Paul talks about here at the end of this passage, people that are eager to do good? Would we be literally enthusiastic about good works? Would we be people who kind of ooze goodness so much so that some people who, are, um, who see that would just be frustrated at how good, how much good is coming out of us? But may it come from a place of God's transformation in our lives as both learners and teachers who let His grace wash over us. Would you stand with me as we pray together?
Oh Lord, reminded of those words from that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Oh Lord, there's nothing that we can do to earn your grace. It is an amazing free gift, God. But Lord, you call us to be students of yours, people who allow your grace to sink deep and transform us from the inside out. And so I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would be people who are open to the transforming work of your grace. Would we receive your grace afresh and anew this morning? Would we trust in and lean on your great love and grace in our lives? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.